Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, said, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. I've taught you guys this before. A sign points to something else. We're not looking at the sign. That's a grand mistake people make. The other day I had to drive to Pottstown. And uh, I was thinking, can anything good come out of Pottstown? And it was bleak and dreary. I'm sorry if any of you live there and I'm driving there. And I saw a billboard for Cancun. And I wanted to go to Cancun. It's March, it's ugly here. And, uh, but I had no desire to get a beach chair and sit under the billboard. That's only the sign. Signs pointing to me to Cancun. So, so John is seeing a series of signs, but the, what he's pointing to is more important. The sign was a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. We'll talk about this. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain and gave birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And he, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You might be thinking Psalm 2, some messianic psalms. And the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 6 says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven. So the great dragon was cast down, that serpent of all called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and the angels with him. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Here's why, for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And, and, and here's where you're going to leave today with this verse. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We are the overcomers. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now, we're in the book of Revelation. If you're a visitor, if it's your first time, we're moving through the book of Revelation. And I try and say this a lot. The book of Revelation, our goal is not to make it easy. It already is. Uh, all this imagery you're looking at, and, and most of the Bible is an imagery, right? But all the imagery you're looking at all comes from the Old Testament, right? Right? Uh, there's nothing really new here, and there's a lot here. And so there's a lot to talk about, but I want to start out by talking about what's called the mystery of anti-Semitism. And the real burning question is, why have the Jewish people, among all people, among all nations, been persecuted more than any other people group? And by the way, read history, it's not even close, okay? You know, why has this group of people... Uh, basically, relentlessly, hatred has followed them wherever they've chosen to live. It makes no rational sense, no, no normal sense. There's, there's no way to go about it. And the reason we want to look at this is because God established this people in Genesis 12. 
He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham that they would be a blessing. They would bless all nations. This was an everlasting covenant. God said he would put his name in Jerusalem forever. We've been studying in the book of Revelation that once the church age ends in chapter 3, the majority of this uh, text turns very Jewish. So we're to pray for Israel. We're, you know, they're God's people. Paul said in Romans 9 to 11, there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved. So it's important on that level. And then we're going to find it's important on another level because we're going to see that there is a great cosmic war and battle that goes on. And, and, and please hear me on this, okay? Um, the Bible is supernaturally natural. Does everybody understand that? So the Bible you hold in your hand, if you're trying to be like an upstanding Christian who wants to fit in and kind of be cool with everybody, it's going to be hard. Because your Bible says that the, the sun stood still one day and that the Red Sea parted and a man got up on Sunday morning and walked out of a tomb and, and all kinds of things, right? And there is a spiritual battle. There's angels, there's a devil, the things we've been reading, right? So, so we get a glimpse here. It's almost like the curtain was pulled back in Revelation 12, and we see the world for what it is, okay? But we got to start with the mystery of anti-Semitism. Why have the Jews been persecuted and hated? It makes no rational, no, no normal sense when you consider three things. Uh, these are an educated people. Right? Highly educated. In fact, in every standardized testing across the board, IQ, uh, whatever, they grade out about 10 points higher than any other people group on the earth. Now, many people think it's because of Deuteronomy where they were told to train their kids on the way and the oral traditions and for thousands of years reading scripture and copying it and citing it. They have flourished in every nation they've ever been to. Uh, remember, they've only been in their land for a very short season. Most of the time, they were scattered to all the other nations. Uh, Rebecca, if you could put up that slide. This is the population of Jews uh, from 1945, what it was in 1945 and today. And you might be surprised by some of this. There were uh, almost a million Jews in Russia, only about 179,000 left, uh, many of the Jews built the Soviet system, the war machine. Uh, they were the brain power behind it. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you're thinking, oh my gosh, Saudi Arabia had Jews? Of course they had Jews. They had a flourishing Jewish com community way before 1945. In fact, Muhammad was enamored with the Jews because they had one book and one God. And they worshipped one way and they had a moral law. Yemen. Uh, 50,000 Jews, down to 50. Poland had 200,000, down to 3,200. Egypt had Jews before they had Christians and Muslims. And now there's like 40 in Egypt. Syria, 15,000. Iraq had 150,000 Jews, one of, the, one of the most highbrow Jewish communities in the Middle East. And if you go on Wiki Travel, you'll find out the reason there are no Jews now is because if Jews would even step foot in some of these countries, it's death. And they have fled to the nation of Israel and lost billions and billions of dollars of wealth behind. The nation of Israel is 8 million people, of which only 6 million are Jews. But they're second only to the U.S. in technological contributions to the world. Charles Murray's written a fascinating book called Human Accomplishment. He has a small section on the Jews there where he said, though they are, and get this, 
they're only three-tenths of one percent, not three-tenths, three-tenths of one percent of world population. That's insignificant. Yet they account for 25% of all notable human intellectual accomplishment in the world today. In the first half of the 20th century, where predominantly in Europe where they were persecuted, they won 14% of all Nobel Peace Prizes in literature, chemistry, physics, and medicine. In the second half of the century, where they were in their land, they won 29%, right? This small group of people. And in the first 19 years of the 21st century, they've won 32%. Now, you could argue, oh my gosh, maybe it's their excellence and their prosperity. Maybe that's why they're oppressed. Well, no, because poor Jews have been persecuted all through history. And you think, well, maybe it's their religion, right? They're quirky, the Sabbath, circumcision, uh, the way they dress, etc. No, there are groups like that. The Amish live in Lancaster. Nobody's oppressing them to that level. Again, it makes no rational, normal sense. And then consider, again, the insignificance of these people. 15 to 20 million Jews tops. Only 6 million live in Israel. There's actually more Jews in Israel than New York now for the first time. Their land is the size of New Jersey. It has no natural resources. So it makes no sense. The third reason it makes no logical sense is as a nation in their entire history, which goes back thousands of years ago, they've never been an aggressor. I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, the way you built your economy was by pilfering other nations. So when Titus comes in 70 AD and sacks Jerusalem, and by the way, go back and read Eusebius and Tacitus, almost to Holocaust levels, they starved 2 million Jews out, lit the temple on fire. If you go to Rome today and you go to the Arch of Titus, who was the victor, and you look up there, you'll see the etchings there where the slaves are taken from Jerusalem and there's a menorah. They took the spoils of Israel and built the Colosseum. That's the way you did it in the ancient world. The Jews have been enslaved under the pharaohs in Egypt. They were sacked by the Babylonians and Romans. They were ruled by the Turks and the British. Now, you're probably sitting back and saying, wait a second, when I watch the news, they're the aggressor. They're the aggressor because they have superior intelligence today with the Mossad. When they know they're going to be attacked, they have a first strike uh, capability or uh, that's really their doctrine, and here's the reason why. The area that was given to them was carved up by the UN in the early part of the 20th century, and there are strips of land seven miles wide they're called to defend, what some call Auschwitz borders. And so they have to first strike or they're going to be done, and so that's their kind of military doctrine. And you look at all this and you say, why the everlasting hatred? Why the persecution? Dennis Prager and Joseph Tolukin insist, as I've been saying, anti-Semitism is unique. They say, and I quote, anti-Semites have hated Jews because they're Jewish. Essentially because of their belief in their chosenness, in their national identity, and their universal reach that there is one God, and that God has a moral law. Now, it's getting more absurd. Uh, just recently read this article in the Wall Street Journal where now anti-Semitism or hatred against Israel is coming from Jews. Can you believe this? The title of the article is Bashing Israel from the Professor's Perch. This writer in the Wall Street Journal says the trends are alarming. A 2017 Pew survey found a rising number of Jewish youth 
to be pretty much detached from Israel. For some, the indifference has turned into hostility as Jewish students participate in calls for boycotts and sanctions against Israel. More surprising are the attitudes of the Jewish professorate, institutions like Columbia, New York University, Hunter College, Brooklyn College, that once were the bulwarks of secular Jewish ideals today have a different mood. Today, their faculties not only target Israel, the animosity has spread. Uh, recently, 220 members of NYU faculty, uh, many of them Jewish, signed a petition urging university administration to divest in companies that anything to do with Israel because of the political hot potato of the West Bank and the Palestinian territories. Now even Jews are persecuting Jews. Catholics have persecuted them. I don't know if you know this, but until the 1990s, uh, it was only the Arab countries and the Vatican who didn't recognize Israel's right to exist. They now since have recognized it. Christians have persecuted them based on the theology that all the promises for Israel go to the church. And of course, Muslims have persecuted them. Now, I, I, I've been reading this book by uh, Ed Hussein. He is uh, the House of Islam. He's a proud Muslim. He's the author of The Islamist. He was a senior advisor to Tony Blair in England. And he rejects radicalism, but he loves Islam. And I was shocked. You know, I was trying to read his book to understand Islam a little more. And he had a whole chapter on the Jews. And it was very favorable. He visited Israel. Uh, well, you know, their third holiest site is in Jerusalem. And he writes in that chapter, today the global Jewish population, which is less than 20 million, uh, is on the brink of annihilation. He said there will be 2 billion Muslims in 30 years, and we can and must accommodate Jews in, the, in, uh, in our midst and share a Middle East of coexistence. The Jews belong in the Middle East and deserve a significant and safe home, as do the Palestinians, who have been languishing in refugee camps for three generations. It is simply unacceptable, indeed deplorable, that within just a few decades of the Holocaust, anti-Semitism is once again on the rise. And in the Muslim world, let's be honest. Jews in New York, Paris, and London fear attacks from radicalized Muslims. Their schools and synagogues have armed guards and police patrols for fear of violence from extreme Muslims. The Charlie Hebdo murderers headed for synagogues and kosher grocers to kill Jews immediately after murdering journalists who had insulted the prophet. And Israel is armed to the teeth and separated from the Palestinians by a wall because lowering its guard would result in immediate rise in terror attacks. This is no way to guarantee long security for Israel or dignity for the Arabs. Now, you can take all this information and say, oh, it's political. No, it's economic. No, it's religious. I'm going to argue that it's spiritual, and it's always been spiritual. And the eye-opener here is Revelation chapter 12. Now, before I get into 12, I got, I, I got to get into the characters for you. And, and listen, my goal is that you should be Bible students reading your own Bible. So I'm not going to give this all to you. I'm going to teach you how to interpret the Bible. There's three characters in the scripture I just read. Let's start in verse 5. A male child was born who will rule the nations plural with a rod of iron, and this child was caught up to heaven. Now, this child's easy. Uh, it's Jesus Christ. There's not even a debate among scholars, okay? So uh, fairly simple. Isaiah said concerning the Messiah, a 
child was born, right? Not a God, a child was born. Uh, a son is given. The government would be upon his shoulders of the influence of his government kingdom. There would be no end, right? This all fits. Psalm 2, one of the great messianic psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, you're my son today, I have begotten you. Ask and I'll give you the nations for an inheritance. Verse 9 says, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron. So uh, couldn't be any clearer, right? The woman's a little more complicated. Clothed with the sun, the moon, the 12 stars, looks weird. But again, it's all from the Old Testament. Some say this is the church, but the church didn't produce Christ. Okay, the church... Jesus instituted the church. That's a little backwards. Uh, the church is never a woman in Scripture. It's always a bride, but never a woman. Uh, the, wo the women we see in Revelation aren't flattering, by the way. Uh, Jezebel in chapter 2 um, leads the church astray in Thyatira. We're going to see a woman, the harlot, rides the beast in Revelation 17. So those mixing of metaphors doesn't really work. Some hold the view this is Mary, right? The Madonna and child. Uh, you walk in some Catholic church, you'll see Mary and a little baby Jesus holding the world, and uh, they kind of have this view. The problem here is the imagery of the sun, the moon, the stars. And then verse 6, this woman flees into the wilderness. That never happened to Mary. And it seems like a much larger people group. Again, clear to me, the woman is Israel. Israel depicted as a woman many times in the Old Testament, God told the prophet Hosea to marry a woman of harlotry. God said, I want you to know what it's like for me with this adulterous generation. You marry a woman of harlotry. But where it really is clear is go back and read the story of Joseph. Uh, in Genesis 37, you know, Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And dad gives him a brand new coat. You all know about this, right? They made a Broadway play out of it. Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. So his brothers are already a little ticked. And then one day, you just picture like this snot-nosed kid out uh, with his brothers. He said, hey, guys, I had a dream. It's really cool. And we were out in the field, and we were gleaning our sheaves, and my sheaves stood up among the rest, and all the other sheaves kind of bowed down to me. What do you guys think about that? And they're kind of like, yeah, that's great. I want to put this knife through your head, you know? <laughs> and then he says, look, I got another dream. Verse 7, chapter 37, that... Uh, the moon, the sun, the stars, they all bow down and worship me. How's that? You know, that's like mom, dad, and the 12 tribes now. By the way, if God ever gives you a dream where you're going to be significant in life and do great things, keep it to yourself. <laughs> the dream was prophetic. You know the story. He was sold into slavery, and there was a famine in the land, and that's what brought the Jews into Egypt, where before they were enslaved, uh, they were actually quite prosperous in Goshen. The, the point of the whole matter is the woman is Israel. And the final character here is the dragon. Very easy. Verse 9. Uh, Satan has over 50 descriptions in Scripture here. He's the great dragon, the serpent, the devil, uh, who deceives the whole world and took the demons with him. This is the Christmas story no one is willing to preach. Not even me. I wouldn't dare do this on Christmas Eve. But this is the real Christmas story, guys. This is the dark side of Christmas. This is a cosmic battle that has been raging and being waged through the ages. Satan has been in his opposition to God and the people of God for a long, long time. 
This war has raged from even before creation. Now, I want to say this. Though, so, though Satan is opposed to God and the things of God and the people of God, he is not the equal of God. Please don't under, misunderstand that. And people get confused. They think there's good and evil. They think there's yin and yang. That God's in this cosmic battle with Satan and uh, hopefully God wins in the end. Nothing can be farther than the truth. In Ezekiel 14, I'll read this to you. We get the greatest picture of Satan uh, that the Bible really gives us. It's a lamentation of the king of Tyre, but after two verses, you know it's not the king of Tyre. It says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre was never in Eden. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. Many think he was the worship leader in heaven. Was prepared for you. Now, here it is. In the day you were created. He's a created being. Albeit, a, maybe the greatest of God's creation. You were the anointed cherub or the angel who covers. God said, I established you. You were on the holy mountain. This is amazing. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth amidst the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Isaiah 14, I will send my throne above heaven. I will send my throne above God. Uh, Satan may be the greatest of all the archangels, certainly greater than Michael and Gabriel. Uh, Michael waging war, this is Jude verse 9, waging war for the body of Moses didn't bring a railing accusation against Satan. Which amazes me because the church goes on this rampage of we're going to fight Satan and yet Michael, an archangel, warring angel, doesn't even get involved. So Satan may be the height of all of God's creation, now at war with God with a third of the angels. He roams the earth, and this is fascinating, and most of you probably never thought about this before you came here. When we think of the devil, we think, okay, God's in heaven, and the devil's in hell, right? You know he's never been there. You know, all those depictions of hell you've seen with the devil with the pitchfork, he's never been to hell. Revelation said hell was prepared for him and the angels. He's not there. You know where he is majority of the time? In heaven. Now read it here. He's in heaven. It says day and night he comes accusing you and me before God. And we get a little picture of that in Job, right? So on my list of questions for God, this is number six. Why did you allow this rascal access? Makes no sense to me. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the enemy of Israel and you and me. And here's all you need to know about him. Look at verse 4. When the woman was ready to give birth, he stood there to devour her child. Devour. That's a strong Greek word. It means to dismember, to crush. If somebody today was waiting in the weeds to crush a child, we would throw them in jail and throw the key away. Now look, if anybody in here has had an abortion, please, what I'm about to say, God has forgiven you if you repent it and the blood covers you and you're forgiven. It's not the unpardonable sin. 
But it's hard for me to read this scripture and think about what's going on in our day. And I know abortion's been politicized. I know they've changed the the phrases to pro-choice and pro-life. And I know it's political. And I know the argument rages around when's conception. But guess what? We're moving way beyond when's conception. They just put us bills in New York. And I don't know if you're keeping up with the news. We're down when a baby comes out, you can destroy it. Denmark just eradicated Down syndrome, there's there's nobody with Down syndrome in Denmark. Not because they found a cure, because now they can find it in the womb and abort all those children. So who do you think is behind all this? Who do you think is behind all this? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, principalities and powers and rulers in dark places. We're going to read later in the chapter, Satan infiltrates government. He infiltrates everything. To believe that Hitler and Hussein and Marx and Stalin and these guys were mere mortals, they were infused by a higher power. Henry Morris says, educated and ignorant, king and pauper, male and female, Jew and Gentile, strong and weak, young and old, black and white, all are deceived by him. All the world's high-sounding philosophies, conceived ever so brilliantly by profound thinkers, whether pragmatist, idealist, Gnosticist, determinist, materialist, transcendentalist, existentialist, deist, or any others, and regardless of the eminence of the genius of those names associated, Aristotleism, Platoism, Hegelism, Marxism, Maoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Canism, Freudism, all are man-originated, man-centered, man-honoring rather than God-originated, God-centered, and God-honoring. They are merely all varieties of humanism rather than theism. They are all of man rather than God and thus helping Satan to carry out and attempt his will. He hated Israel from the time in Genesis 3, 15, the first prophecy in the Bible, that it would be the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that makes no sense, right? All genealogies are male. It's the sperm or the seed of a man. God said, no, this will be the seed of the woman. That's why in the Christmas story you prefer, Mary says, how can this be? How can I be a child? I've never known a man. And the answer was the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This will be supernatural. See the woman, and you will conceive of the Holy Spirit. From that time, it's no surprise. From that time, it's no surprise, Cain kills Abel. Pharaoh orders all male Hebrew babies to be thrown into the river. When Herod finds out that the star is that Jesus would be born, he has an edict that the slaughter of the innocents, again, all male babies to be destroyed. The Holocaust. It goes on and on. Now, none of this is a surprise to God. God knows what's going on. God has Satan on a short lease. In Deuteronomy 28, 37, God said, Thou shalt be an astonishment among the nations, wherever the Lord God will lead you. Right? So God, because of idolatry, said that I will send you out, and if I send you out, I'll regather you, which 1948 happened. By the way, if you're looking for a reason to believe in God, the Jew, uh, anybody here seen a Perizzite, Gergeshite, Amalekite, Philistine, flashlight termite, seen any of these people lately? Yeah, why is the Jew still here, still intact, still living out their moral law? It's amazing. Why is there a nation of Israel, 1948? No nation has ever gone out and become a nation again. You've got to wrestle with that. If you're you're 
seeking God or you don't believe in God, yeah, what are you going to do with that information? Staggering. In Jeremiah 29 and 44, I've condensed some of these. God said, I will deliver you um, and you'll be dispersed among all the kingdoms of the earth. You will be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations. That's anti-Semitism. The Bible told us way before. Here's what's remarkable, though. Every time the Jews have been persecuted, they get a holiday out of it. They really do. You know, Pharaoh wants to kill them, they get Passover. In Esther, they want to get, they're annihilated, they get Purim. You know, Jesus, they try and kill, we get Christmas. Uh, there's a Holocaust, we get 1948, the Day of Independence for Israel. The apple of God's eye, the people that he chose. He said, if my right hand forgets thee, O Israel, I would forget my cunning. How does this apply to you and me? It applies to you and me in tremendous ways to understand we're in the same war. We haven't replaced Israel. We've been grafted in. Okay, they've been set aside. We've been grafted in. There's a time coming when all Israel will be saved. But now you and I are the church. We're a city on a hill. We're the light of the world. God is working through the Jew. There's no Greek or Jew or Gentile. There's no black or white, bond or free, right? We're universally the church. So what do you think Satan's trying to do to us? Same thing. Devour. Kill, steal, destroy. He's relentless. He wants to tell you there's no God. He wants to pound into you God doesn't love you. He wants to move you towards the flesh instead of the spirit. Jesus looked in the eyes of Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And the idea is he can. God allowed him to sift Job. But Jesus said, lo, I pray for you that your faith wouldn't fail. He's a worthy foe. He's relentless. He's vile. He's cunning. Now here's where believers get tripped up. Somehow we think we have to get into the theater that we're seeing here in Romans 12 to, to overcome and defeat him. And this has always been sexy to Christians. I don't know why, but we think we have to get out of this theater, into that theater, and bind the enemy or pray to the east, west, north, and south of the demons that are in those places, or do an exorcism, or some form of de demonology. Remember I said the Bible is supernaturally natural? Yeah, that, that supernatural world's going on. Guess what? We're not privy to that world. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel was praying one day, as was his custom. And an angel comes to him. It says, Daniel, from the moment you prayed, your prayer was heard. Oh my gosh, does anybody need a greater impetus to pray more? The day you prayed, your prayer was heard. And we've already looked in Revelation of prayer like incense coming up before God. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, and Michael the archangel had to come. Isn't that amazing? You know, you got a cup of coffee, you're in your house, you start praying. You never know, you started some cacophony of spiritual warfare. Daniel has no idea, he just thinks he's praying, and there's a prince over Persia, a spirit, some demonic entity, and Michael the archangel has to come and fight, and this whole thing's going on for 21 days, and Daniel has no idea. But Daniel was never called into that battle. See, that's what we got to understand. You know, Christians drive me absolutely bonkers. 
Because they whoop it up and they, the devil this, and they got all these accusations, they got everybody fired up. And half the time those people go home twice as worse as when they came. Because that's not a theater you can fight in. Ephesians says we stand armed. The word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, our mind renewed. Daniel was praying. I'm not saying there's not times for laying hands on people and casting out. You know, Jesus did all that. It's for another day. I'm trying to make a point. Michael the archangel and Jude when he argued for the body of Satan, didn't even bring a railing accusation against him. Understood the power of this enemy. So if we're not going to do all that, how do we defeat? How do we overcome? Revelation 2 and 3, we are more than overcomers, right? To him who overcomes, we're called to overcome. We are called to live a victorious life in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, again, I said we were going to really hone in on this verse, and this is what you need to really take to the bank. Revelation chapter 12 says, they overcame him, verse 11, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The minute you became a Christian, you were blood-bought. You were sealed. Romans 8 says there'll be no condemnation anymore. There'll be no separation anymore. You were given the Spirit as a down payment. Like the blood on the door of those who went in and out of the land of Egypt and Israel, you were forever covered. So my spirit has lamented in the last several months some pretty prominent Ministers have fallen. And uh, it's always disheartening because this is what I do. And I also know how hard this is to do. And I know those men, there's probably a kernel of truth, but those men started out and gave all they had to ministry and like all of us, have failings. It's one of the problems we have in the church is we don't admit we're fallen people. We really are. We're fallen people. Like, I always say this. Uh, I was watching a rabbi on TV, and this rabbi was uh, stating the position that the way you get saved in Judaism, which is not biblical, it's rabbinical, is um, doing good deeds, right? Isn't that every religion? But I never heard this one. Gosh, you thought you heard everything. He said, oh, here's how it works. Remember when you were in school? You'd have to get an A. 70 was a passing grade. And so what he was saying is, when you die, if 70% of your life was good, you're going to go to heaven. And then the knucklehead interviewer said, man, that sounds like justice. And I'm thinking, who wants justice? I don't. I want mercy. I want grace. That's what I'm counting on, by the way. We don't just get saved by grace. We live by grace. We're not just saved by the blood. We live by the blood. To get up in the morning and realize I'm covered by the blood of Christ, what else would I possibly need? The greatest sacrifice of ever. There is no salvation, there's no redemption without the shedding of blood. And the last time I checked, nobody's sacrificing bulls and animals anymore. Because God rent the veil from top to bottom, said enough is enough. None is righteous, no, not one. 
So we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. But then it says, the power of our testimony. I'm writing a book called 21 Reasons Why I Believe in God. And I'm trying to find eclectic things. I mean, listen, there's only two proofs for God. The, the starry heaven above and the, the moral world within, okay? That's really the proof for God. So I'm trying to find eclectic things in nature and in us to kind of draw people into that. So I'm counting down from 21 to 1. You know what number one's going to be? Me. Number one's going to be me. How the God of the universe looked down and saw me and took all the things of thousands of years, this battle of the ages, this, this child being born, all, all this imagery and this salvation, and it came to me and you. And how many testimonies have we read? And how many testimonies have we heard? Atheist conversions, Jewish conversions, and people that were say, Satan worshipers, and businessmen, and women, and gymnasts, and, and from, from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. You can take a lot of things away from me. You can never take away the power of my testimony. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the power of his testimony, and it ends here by saying, they did not love their lives to the death. When Satan is cast down, he's going to go bonkers. He's going to become out of his mind. Because he knows his time is short. You already have the wrath of God coming out, so just, just where we are in Revelation, I mean, it's going to be hell on earth, literally. And this people group, but, but overlaid on all this, did not love their lives to the death. I love that. It means these were people who were looking beyond their own existence, looking to what God had called them. I was reading this, I was thinking of Noah because Noah really is the example, right? No one was looking for judgment in his day. Everybody thought it was great in his day. It had never rained in his day. No one's looking for judgment today. You know, we saw in that video, we got AI coming, we got robots coming, cars are gonna pick us up, life's gonna get easier. Why would Jesus ever come? There's no judgment. Jesus himself said when he returns, would he find faith on the earth? And the inference there is he would not. But they did not love their lives to death. I think of Noah who had a hammer in one hand and a Bible in the other. And at a time where no one thought it was possible, he was a preacher of righteousness. And he went against the grain of society. And we have this wonderful picture here that we overcome, regardless of what Satan throws at us. And I know life's hard. It really is. We have the world, the flesh, the devil. Life is difficult. But greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. And there is a hatred for the Jews. There's a hatred for you and me. There's a hatred for the people of God because he wants to devour us. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail.